Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Strength and Recovery Podcast. We're so grateful to have you joining us. And we are joined by today's guest, um, Katie Hall. And Katie is an alumnus of our Bracebridge Hall location, which is in Earlville, Maryland, a, a gorgeous facility um, and um, just a real um, an amazing place, isn't it? Don't you think? It's so beautiful. Can you tell us where where is Earlville, Maryland? So Earlville is in the middle of nowhere. It's in Cecil County, Maryland. <laughs> I actually lived in Earlville for a period of time, and I didn't know RCA was there. Um, you know, I lived in Middletown, Delaware when I got sober, so that was um, an appeal because it was close to home, and I transferred to RCA from the hospital. I didn't plan on getting sober, so I kind of walked in with the clothes on my back and needed to be able to be close to home so people could bring me stuff but it's it's absolutely gorgeous I feel so blessed to have gone there and you know through my sobriety journey I've spoke in I, I can't even tell you how many places now but like very sordid places sometimes and it really makes me appreciate how blessed I am to have gone to RCA. Well, um, I think I met you at Bracebridge for one of the alumni events. Yep, exactly. And um, we do try to get out there. I, I love, I love when we get to have events on the property because it's just a gorgeous setting. And um, so I know everybody always thinks that you work there because you're there so much. Right. So tell us, <laughs> um, you know, how much, you know, you you serve. You want to give back, right? And so, how has that been part of your recovery? You know, um, my sponsor really drives home the 12 steps. She drives home all the steps, but, you know, I think a lot of people get to their 12 step and then they're just like, I'm not ready, you know? And, uh, what she always tells me is like, you weren't ready to drink either, but like get out there and, you know, do your thing. So, you know, at 90 days sober, I had my first sponsee and I'm, again, I'm terrified. Right. And she's saying to me, like, I know you don't know what you're doing you know you don't know what you're doing but the person that you're reading that book to doesn't know that you don't know what you're doing right and it's we're reading a book you're reading a book to somebody that you didn't write your highlights aren't original and you're just telling them about your experience and you know eventually that led to speaking commitments and eventually that led to board commitments and every other type of commitment um one of my favorite things in the entire world is cooking and you know I've been able to use that in service I I was going into the attack addiction houses and teaching them how to cook just basic meals for when they're you know out on their own and also I have a monthly commitment at a homeless shelter where I go down and cook meals for the um, residents of Dover. I love that you took something your talent right and found a place to plug that in I know a lot of people are like I don't have a special skill or I'm not a public speaker, but just telling your story and sharing your heart and, and your talents, whatever those are, even if it's just life skills, right. Um, Mm -hmm. We're all good at something. I, I I heard somebody say I'm the best at laundry and even that (laughs) skill to go in and teach people how to, I don't know. That's kind of a silly. Yeah. No, I have a friend who, is in recovery and she runs a laundry service, you know, she just, yeah. I'm just like, that's awesome. You know, 
I hate laundry. So, you know, <laughs> that would not be my special gift. I don't even know why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought of it probably because it needs doing, right? <laughs> right. I start, I read someone that said, it is your responsibility to do your family's laundry, not to make sure there is no laundry. And I was like, Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Um, why don't you take us back? Um, what was life like before recovery? Chaos. Um, you know, um, I'm the child of an alcoholic as well. And, um, unfortunately my mom died in active addiction. Um, you know, direct result of her addiction, not necessarily, she didn't overdose or anything like that, but, you know, basically her body gave out and she died in 2016. And, you know, I lived my whole life swearing I would never be like her. And I didn't believe addiction was a disease um, until it happened to me, honestly. Um, I resented her. I hated her. I wanted her to love me and love my sister more than she loved drugs and alcohol. And, you know, now that I've gone through it, like I loved my children way more than I loved alcohol. Don't, you know, let's not get it twisted. But at the end of the day, their alcohol was more powerful than my children. And, you know, I got divorced um, actually five years ago today. And um, I, I mean, the addiction was definitely present before then, um, but it got way worse after, um, mostly because mostly I didn't have anybody watching me or like holding me accountable. And it was almost like a permission slip to go do whatever I wanted. So, yeah, I mean, I just swore I would never be like her. Right. And, you know, I'm going through this divorce and, you know, I'm accomplishing things in active addiction. People don't talk about that a lot. You know, a lot of my friends that are in the rooms, um, you know, were homeless and they were in jail and things like that. I was close to being homeless, but I wasn't homeless. Um, I was close to going to jail, but I didn't. Right. I had a very promising career. I had a house, I had a car, I had a boyfriend, you know, but it just like all this pain that I had endured basically my whole life, you know, childhood and just pushing stuff down. Really, I was just like feeding myself medicine with alcohol. And, you know, I always had a relationship with God or I thought I had a relationship with God. I believed in God but I wasn't trusting him. And, you know, the prayers that I had before were like, please God, let me win the lottery. Cause I thought that was going to solve my problems or, you know, let this man love me. And, um, you know, eventually it was like, I don't want to wake up, you know, or, and then when I did wake up, it was like, please help me get sober. And like, I thought that those prayers were going to be answered with rainbows and sunshine. I thought I was going to wake up one day and it would just be like, Oof, it's gone. But that's not what happened. I had to be in enough pain essentially to surrender. And the breaking point was um, October 9th, 2021. I was drinking and driving, which I did all the time. Um, it was a favorite pastime of mine. And I hit a family of four and yeah. And I would like love to tell you that I sat there and took the consequences of my actions. I would love to tell you 
that I made sure everybody was okay, but I didn't. And I fled and I hid from the police for multiple days. And eventually something came over me that, you know, just said like, there's a common denominator with all your problems and it's alcohol and you need help. And, you know, I was Facebook friends with Vince um, before I got sober. I don't know how we knew each other. I don't think we even did know each other, but we grew up in the same area and it's very small. So we have a lot of mutual friends. And Vince is our alumni coordinator. He helps a ton of people get into treatment alums if they, you know, need to engage services again, or just anyone, loved ones, family, friends, he helps them find care. So he's just an amazing human, right? Oh my gosh. He went from, you know, a Facebook friend to a mentor. I credit him a lot because I saw how much he did recover out loud and I wanted what he had. And actually one of the main reasons I decided to go to RCA is because I thought he went there. That's how, where he got sober. Anyway, I ended up there after, um, like a five or six day stay in the hospital. Did you call Vince? Did he help you? He did. Yeah. I had, it was him and two other men that I knew that were sober that I was like communicating with constantly. And I, I only went to the hospital first because I tried to get into another facility and, you know, this was kind of a, like at the end ish or the height of COVID, I should say. And the other facility wouldn't take me because um, they didn't have a bed. And they let me leave and drive drunk to the hospital. It's like insane to me, <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah, I ended up at RCA and, you know, I just remember just being completely hopeless but willing at the same time. Like I just wanted to feel better and I wanted my children to have a different life than I had. And I didn't want them to deal with, you know, growing up the way that I did. And they were four when I have twins. So they were four when I got sober and I was, I just think of God every day that like, hopefully by the grace of God, you know, that they will never remember that life. Mm-hmm. And they're going to have a lot of new memories with mom. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So what was that like stepping into treatment for the first time? Terrifying. Like, I didn't know what to expect. Um, You know, I didn't know. I I didn't know, right? Like, I saw the pamphlet when I was in um, detox at the hospital it looked like a very fancy place. So I was just like, oh, this is going to be luxurious. And it was. Don't get me wrong. I tell people all the time, like, this is way nicer than, you know, some of the other facilities that we have in the area. When I bring people down to speak, they're just like, oh, my gosh, I should be wearing a ball gown (laughs) to this place, you know. Um, But it's it was after like the first day. I was fine. You know, um, I had some amazing 12 step coaches, um, along the way, one who no longer works there, but coincidentally we're in the same home group now. And she actually introduced me to my sponsor and that's, you know, where life took off. Right. And while I was there, people thought I worked there then too. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which I was, 
it makes me laugh. Um, but I have a very corporate job, so I'm very good at networking and things like that. So I think I was just like introducing myself constantly to the newcomer. And you have a presence about you. You're <laughs> with the mostest for sure. Yes. <laughs> Something like that. And, um, you know, I went to group and I went to every group and there was rarely a time that I sat in my room and, you know, there was, of course there was moments, you know, I'm a big um, football fan and it was the middle of football season. So sometimes I'd run back to my room to check the score on the game or something like that. But yeah, I took it really seriously. And like, I joke when I say this, but I'm like, if you told me to stare at the wall, rub a grapefruit on my butt and sing Bohemian Rhapsody at the same time. And that would keep me sober. Like that's what I would have done. <laughs> like it's, it's that the gift of desperation, right? Absolutely. Yeah. That's. And thank God for that. Like every, every day I thank God for that because I see so many people that don't come back from this. And, you know, one of one of the things that they told me when I was in there is get yourself a black dress because you're going to need it. Mm. And it's been painstakingly true. Um, I'll have two years next Friday. So it's just like, I mean, Monday I went on a 12 step call for somebody I used to sponsor and we had to call the paramedics mm. and it's just, it's heartbreaking. And, you know, I know we're not going to save the world and I know that we're not going, I'm not even going to save the city of Wilmington. I know that, but you know, I feel responsible because as an alcoholic, like who was at the lowest part of their life? Um, you know, I'm, I'm responsible for that. And I have this unique qualification to be able to help other people who are just like me. Do you think there's something about the combination of, and I, I think what I'm hearing you say, it was desperation but then also surrender absolutely oh yeah that's what I consider walking into the hospital my moment of surrender where I was just so beaten spiritually bankrupt and I was just like I can't do this anymore like I cannot live like this anymore I was literally about to lose everything I mean and I did end up losing most things um but I've gotten them back over the past two years through lots of like that a little bit. Yeah, sure. What, what do you feel like really your addiction? If you, if you had to sum up the cost or, or the things that you lost. So uh, let's put it this way. I was a vice president at a law firm. When I came in, I was making almost a hundred thousand dollars a year and I had two side businesses which I don't even know how much money I was making during those, but one of those businesses was a mobile bartending business. And the year I got sober, we did 65 weddings. So it's gotta be close to $200,000 like that just went down the drain. You know, um, I never made a mortgage payment in almost two years and COVID, you know, protected me from being put out on the streets but I had to deal with that, you know, essentially as soon as I got sober. And so you're talking close to, I'm, I'm doing the math, close to $300,000 a year and more than that, probably. Yeah. Where is all that going? Simply alcohol spending, right? Like just 
ludicrous spending. Sometimes you know, I can't goes along with right. Uh, yeah, I can't. I, I there's no way I spent that much on just booze. Obviously, I had to I had to pay for gas and daycare and clothes and things like that. But like we were talking about laundry, I didn't even do laundry for like six months because I was just so like low and depressed and. I would just go and buy new clothes all the time for myself and my kids, yeah. which is, it's insane. Yeah. It is. Um, you know, sometimes I still have those tendencies where I'm like, oh, I'll just go buy them a new outfit or something like that. And then I'm like, no, like, you know, and that's what the the steps and spiritual solution like brings me back to. It brings me back to like moments of clarity where it's like, you can do these things now and like, you don't have to, you don't have to live like that anymore. I think that um, I wrote in my journal this week, you know, I think we all face hard things, right? And like, just understanding we have the capacity to do hard things, right? Right. And face, I mean, it's tough. And sometimes you have to talk yourself into it. But there are moments when we just have to kind of look ourselves in the mirror and, and, and encourage ourselves that, that we do have those capabilities. Absolutely. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Like it's, you know, I, there's nothing that I haven't been able to face so far. You know, there's the obsession of drinking is removed from me. Of course, there's a moment occasionally where I'm like, I bet I could just have one. And then I'm like, no, you can't. You have proven time and time again. That was the obsession for me. It wasn't like, let's get drunk every day. It was like, I'm just going to have one. And I would joke and I still see some, I, sometimes when I tell my story, I say this, but I used to joke that there was a magnet on the front of my car mm-hmm. because the bar was at the front of my neighborhood. And um, I had to go past it no matter what. Some people, when I was trying to get sober by myself, they would say, just, just don't go in that entrance. Well, I have to go past it no matter what. And I would be like, you're not going to go today. You're not going to go today. You're not going to go today. And I'd be like, whoop. And I would park. And then I would be in the spot and be like, you're just going to have one. Right. And about six doubles later, I'd be like, this is getting a little expensive. I should go over to the liquor store. And um, I used to buy airplane bottles because to me, that's how I controlled my drinking. And even the people at the liquor store would be like, why don't you just buy a handle? And I'd be like, oh, I'm controlling it. Like, that's delusion. That's like true delusion. And that's what (laughs) I try to explain to people all the time. And it's funny when I tell that part of my story, a lot of times at Bricebridge, people just laugh because they're like, I did that too, you know? And there is a levity to all of this, right? Like, that's the beauty of recovery is that we can joke about this stuff and see how crazy we were and you know, that's where I relate to a lot of my friends because I am pretty much a purist alcoholic. Um, you know, I didn't do hard drugs or anything like that, but my friends did and they, they will, will compare stories. And it's, even though the drug of choice is different, the stories are all the same. It's that compulsion. Right. Disease. Yep, exactly and how it affects the brain and understanding that chemistry. And it's part of what treatment does, right? Is, is working with the therapist, working with the medical staff to understand, oh, I have altered my brain in such a way. 
or through genetics, there's components, right? And just that understanding alone uh, gives you a sense of autonomy back. Absolutely. For sure. For sure. So you're, you're suffering this financial strain building up. Yep. Um, What other things would you say were the relationships you were losing at this time as well? Yeah. I mean, I was in a long-term relationship at the end of my addiction. You know, he tried to call me out multiple times. You know, I lied about it. Of course I would pretend like I was sober. So like if we went out, I would drink NA beer um, at the bar, but like, then I would go into the bathroom and have the airplane bottles in my purse and, you know, kept a bottle of mouthwash in my car and a toothbrush because I didn't want anybody to smell the whiskey on my breath. And, you know, I really loved him. Um, but at the same time, like knew that we weren't on the same page as to where the trajectory of our relationship was going. And just like the resentment and bitterness just like Mm. built up. But again, I was just like pushing it down. So like that night that I got into that car accident is the night we actually broke up and I was like going to confront him. And then I, you know, decided I shouldn't be doing that. And when I turned around, I hit the family, you know, so then I'm facing legal consequences too, right? Like I know the police are looking for me. Um, I knew if and when they got me, I was going to lose custody of my children because my ex-husband was already suspicious that, you know, I'd been having, that the addiction had gotten way worse since we had been divorced. Um, I was on short-term disability because I had broken my ankle two months before. I was not drunk when I broke it. And I always feel the need to tell everybody (laughs) that. It's okay. (laughs) They assume because I fell down my stairs. So like they're, you know, I understand why people assume that, but, um, you know, I had been on short-term disability for like two months at that point. I knew if I went to rehab that like, that was going to extend it even longer. I was also not getting paid, even though I was supposed to like, you know, just fighting with the insurance company to pay me and those things get delayed. And, um, I was just terrified. Mm-hmm. Like no, there's no, no other way to describe it besides complete terror. Um, you know, as I've learned through the steps and, you know, working with a sponsor is that God puts you where he needs you mm-hmm. and God won't put you through anything that you can't get through. And now I have a greater appreciation for all of those things for yeah. sure. Now, did the legal consequences catch up with you with the car? Yep. So I turned myself in um, while I was in rehab. One of the drivers took me to the police station. How did, did you decide to do that? Did you feel like my that? therapist strongly encouraged it? He was like, it's going to look better for you if you turn yourself in um, while you're here rather than, you know, wait. The longer you wait, the worse it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And so I'm so full of myself in this moment that, like, you know, I don't have my cell phone. So I'm driving an hour to go turn myself in with this driver. I'm wearing my RCA Navy blue t-shirt. And like, all I can think of is ugh, I'm going to have my rehab t-shirt on in my mugshot. Like that's like insanity, right? Like that I'm so self-absorbed with myself in that moment that that's all I can think about. Like not, 
not if I hurt that family. Thank God nobody was hurt, by the way. Um, and, you know, there was no mugshot. There was no handcuffs. Yeah. They just handed me a stack of tickets. And um, I ended up losing my driver's license for six months. I should have lost it for a year uh, because I didn't have insurance at the time either. And my sponsor wrote me a gleaming letter of recommendation because by the time the court case came around, I had like eight months of sobriety or something like that. So she wrote me this like gleaming letter of recommendation and the um, prosecutor called her. So, and she told me, she was like, I've written dozens of letters and she's like, they've never called me before. And they took a little bit of pity on me, you know, that I was really serious and that I not just a person who goes to meetings, but a member of a 12 step fellowship, you know, that I do this, I do this for real. And, um, <clears throat> yeah, so I lost that June of 22. I got my license back December of last year and, you know, I was able to get a car, get insurance, which is outrageously expensive, but you know, I can afford it. It's just, it's just a little gut punch every month, you know, so. I think we all feel that way. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And it's, I think there's something, there's, there's gotta be some, um, it's gotta feel good to be able to do that. Like, oh, wow. Absolutely. Even the little, yeah. even when they hurt, even when, but you know, I'm, I'm doing the hard things. Yeah. I was actually just talking about that with my boyfriend's mom, because, um, you know, when I got out of rehab, I didn't have gas in my house. And so I w this is so dangerous. Don't anybody ever do this, but I was like literally sleeping with the oven on, on broil just to like warm the house so the pipes wouldn't freeze and, you know, sleeping with like a space heater in my bedroom and, because I, I had to sell the house, right? Like I hadn't never made a mortgage payment on it. And I had like a small window of opportunity where I could sell it before it went to sheriff sale. And, um, you know, now like the beginning of last year, I think the electric bill was like $500 because I was living in like a historic home. And I was like, but you hear, here's the beauty. I can pay that. Right. Like, and I can do that. And I get to have heat in my house and I get to have air conditioning and it like, I can leave the lights on. It's it's okay, you know. And I guess we talked about the loss, but these are the things that are coming back. The finance, oh, yeah. the what else do you think has come back to you? Gifts of recovery. So this is I I can say this in my sleep because I say it every time I speak, but you know what my sponsor tells me is it's no longer my business where I live, where I work, or who I'm with, right? And do that one more time where I live, where I work or who I'm with is none of my business. Okay. And right? tell me what she means by that. So, you know, basically just surrendering and asking God to put you where he needs you. Right. Um, so it's like surrender to the next level, right. That's like, yeah, know. it's, it's, it hasn't failed me. I, I don't yeah. know what else to say, but besides it's that not lack of taking responsibility, it's, you know, to go back to what I've heard people say, doing the next right thing until all those things fall into place, right? Exactly. So, you know, I needed a place to live and I knew I was going to lose my driver's license. So 
Um, I work in the financial industry. So if anybody doesn't know, almost all the banks are in Wilmington and um, I needed to basically move to Wilmington uh, to be able to afford to Uber around and get around. And um, <clears throat> I went and looked at this house and, you know, I know nothing about Wilmington um, at this time. And I was like asking people like, is this a nice area? You know, that type of thing. And I went and looked at this house and like, I think I had 60 days of sobriety at the time. And my credit score was like 419. It was like really bad. And, you know, basically I just wrote a letter and like asked them to take pity on me. And they did. And they only took pity on me because, um, their son was one of us and he was not sober at the time. I, you know, I would challenge the word pity. They took a chance, right? Maybe, yeah. But I wouldn't say pity. They, they definitely took a chance. They're given grace. Right. And we moved in, or I moved in February of 2022. Um, I sold my house nine days before I went to sheriff sale. Um, and I only was able to sell it because like God showed up through my realtor that day and mm. he decided not to take a commission. So I walked away like, you know, I didn't make any money, which I didn't deserve to make any money because I never made a mortgage payment, but I also didn't owe any money. Mm. And then after I got my driver's license back and, you know, I got a car, I was like, I don't really need to live in the city anymore. And I loved living in the city don't get me wrong, but not paying city tax and not living in a row house was pretty appealing, like living in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. Plus I knew that it would be more appealing for my ex-husband to give my children back if I had a yard and like a place for them to play. And um, I went and looked at this house and again, I recover out loud. It is not a secret. Delaware is a very small place. Everybody knows everybody. And I look at this house and the guy's like the landlord he's like I understand you're a sober member of a 12-step fellowship and I was like I am and he was like the house is yours you can have it no credit check no background check um you know when do you want to move in and he flipped the house and he let me pick every single thing out um so we went from like a two-bedroom row house to a five-bedroom single family home mm -hmm. um yeah it's I love it here. I never, I live in Ellesmere, which is like a suburb of Wilmington and <laughs> not where I ever thought I would be. But again, God puts me where he needs me. And like, I'm 17 minutes from my office, um, close, like my, my home group is five minutes away. You know, I'm able to get to anything within a few minutes. And then, you know, my ex-husband did give the kids back and now I have them every weekend. We never went to court. There was no like fighting, screaming. It was just like, I see what you're doing and I trust you. Um, and then my job, right? Like I came in, like I said, I was a vice president of a law firm, but I was really miserable, like really, really miserable. And I was not, I was just not succeeding. Um, I felt like I couldn't do anything right. And I just knew that the end was coming to that job. Um, and, you know, out of fear, I was like, called my sponsor and I'm like, what do I do? And she's like, you need to ask God to put you where he needs you. And I said, well, I can't make less money. And she was like, oh, sweet child. 
<laughs> she laughs at me a lot and she's like god will provide like you stick close to god and perform his work you help his kids and help her ride and so i did and i took a twelve thousand dollar a year pay cut and i went um into this job at a different company and you know they might not have been able to financially compensate me but they gave me grace they gave me empathy they allowed me to recover out loud there um you know when i didn't have a driver's license they only asked that i come in the office one day a week and you know eventually that job got to be i felt like i was outgrowing it a little bit and then i got an offer um at another financial institution i've been doing this for 18 years i can't believe it but anyway um with a 56% pay increase and i am i just can't fathom you know, like i think back 5 years ago when i got divorced and i'm making $80,000 more a year than i was then and it's just like I don't have a degree you know I'm very proud of the fact that I don't have a degree I've had to work very hard for everything I've ever had but like, 18 years ago I, I walked into Bank of America um, $12 an hour you know call center job and I really thought like in my little heart of hearts like I really hope someday I'm able to make $20 an hour and you know, through hard work and discipline and networking and just, you know, the gift of gab, it's gotten me here. And being yourself. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Tell me what's the, been the hardest thing you've had to do? Give up my kids. Mm -hmm. um, because like my initial thought is no, you know, and they need they need their mom. But like, I got that I got served with the papers when I was doing my sixth step, which mm -hmm. is, you know, your power hour of God. And it was like peace was brought to me, because I wanted to give them a chance. And I wanted to give myself a chance. And, you know, only seeing them for two hours a week for almost two years was rough. It was really rough. Um, and having to just kind of like step back and be like, you're not the right person for them right now. Um, and every time I've talked to you, I, I mean, I just remember our, like, you've always mentioned your kids. I love them so much. You know, I'm working on this. I'm working on this. Yeah. Um, they're the loves of my life, you know, and um, I can't imagine life without them. And I'm so grateful that I get to give them a better life than I had, you know? And what do you think the role of grieving the relationship with your mom, uh, how do you think that impacted your alcoholism? I had to forgive her, you know? And I do think the addiction got worse because I just pushed it down and I just blamed her for everything. And I couldn't see how powerful the drugs and alcohol were, you know? Um, and I also like really selfishly held on to that for a long time, like used it as an excuse to drink. Like, 
what way? Just being like, it would be the anniversary of her death or her birthday. And I'd be like, well, might as well get drunk today. Like, and like, <laughs> that's crazy. She died because of a direct result of her addiction. And here I am drinking, you know? Um, and it's really the pain. You're feeling the pain. Yeah. It's the pain of, you know, what could have been, you know, we never had a great relationship because of it. Um, I loved her very much and I still do, you know, and I can recognize now that how hard that must have been and okay. also give her grace too. You, you have 10 sponsees, you said. I don't, I don't even know how many I need to sit down and calculate something like that. And I'm sure you've had more through this process. Yeah. I'm sure you've helped others through that grief journey and through similar relationships with their parents. Definitely. What's your, how do you help them? How do you, what do you say? I just, most of the time, if I have a sponsee who has a parent that's passed, I have them write an immense letter to their parents. Um, that's what I did. I took it to my mom's grave and I talked to her. You know, and it was one of the hardest amends I had to make. A lot of people would say, well, why did you owe her amends? She was the alcoholic. She didn't, you know, she wasn't a, maybe a traditional mother to you. Right. Like, well, I was mean to her because of the way that, because of her addiction, you know, um, I stopped talking to her for the first or the last year of her life. You know, never gave her an explanation. There was never a goodbye. Um, you did this, like giving her justification. I just essentially ghosted her. Mm. And really, you know, something that I heard somebody say about they had a parent who was an alcoholic or an addict. They were like, did you ever ask them the way that they grew up? Oh, that's good. And I did not know excuse me, did not know that my grandparents were alcoholics too until much later in life. Um, you know, I don't remember those things. My grandmother died when I was 13. My grandfather died when I was five. It's not something I grew up with, but apparently my grandfather was a really mean drunk. And like I emotional trauma. Right. Mm-hmm. And it is genetic, right? Like, you know, just be, it doesn't always affect everybody, but as far as I know, I'm the first person to be sober in my family, like be in recovery. And I, I just think how powerful that is. That's amazing. Right. And what a new legacy you're providing, not only with your actions, but the education, helping others. Mm-hmm. It's really beautiful, Katie. Thank you. And um, I'm so excited for your kids to be able to see that. You know, there's hope that there's power on the other side. Mm-hmm. What do you think, what would be your tip for someone parenting in recovery? How do you, everybody says, how do you talk to your kids about that? You I haven't talked to them at all because they're so young, right? Um, they're six that? now. Yeah. Um, it's weird because like, I wonder if they remember things. Mm-hmm. But I also don't want to cause further harm by bringing it up. Mm-hmm. Um, 
when they're old enough, probably like 14, 15, I plan to sit down and make a formal amends to them and explain to them, you know, why they weren't with me. So I thought I had an easy out because I broke my ankle two months before I got sober. So they thought I was getting help for my ankle. Um, but, you know, within the first year of me getting sober, I was with my ex-husband's girlfriend and the kids and we were taking them somewhere and they were like, mommy, remember the, that's the mommy juice store you used to go to, you know? And I'm like, Ugh. it just makes you cringe. Cause like, I'm just like, I don't want them to know that. How would you plan to talk to them about drugs and alcohol? I'm under no delusion that I'm going to be able to stop them from trying drugs or alcohol. Right. Um, I would hope that they don't try drugs. And I hope if they decide that they want to drink, that they do it safely. Um, you know, I was warned many times. Um, but, you know, all I can do is provide education. And if they, I hope that they can see someday, like if they are having a problem, that they know that they can come to me, you know. Recovery. Right. So help others and and going to meeting, I, I think that's such a legacy. For like, sure. It's, it's, this is what mom valued, right? Like, right. Teaching them. Yeah, and they see some of that now. They know I go down and cook for the homeless once a month. And they're like, why? You know, why do you do that? And I'm like, we help people that can't help themselves, you know? And just trying to teach them kindness and, like, tolerance, patience, and pity always, you know? And... You know, it's like it says, you know, a more important display of our, these principles in our are in our respective affairs and homes, you know, and um, something I just didn't really have, you know. Um, yeah, I don't want that. I don't want what I had for them and we're I don't want them to ever have to worry about me, you know, the way that I worry about my mom. Any, um, any last things you would want to share with us before we wrap up? Yeah. So I have to talk about my boyfriend because this is. Okay. You know, I want to so. hear. We are here <laughs> for it. <laughs> so again, it's none of your business who you're with. Right. And so some people will tell you that you have to wait a year to get into a relationship. It doesn't say that anywhere in any literature. My sponsor did not tell me to wait a year. She just told me to get through my steps. Right. And then. She told me, um, she said, I want you to make an ideals list, right? And I'm still insane at this point. I'm like 90 days sober. And my ideals list was six foot five, drives a truck, has tattoos, red hair, and likes the Philadelphia Eagles, right? I'm a huge Eagles fan. And um, she was like, she was like, that's not what I meant, you know, and <laughs> honest, kind, hard work, yeah. those kind of things. Right. Yeah. She was like spiritual ideals. <laughs> you know? <it> matter. <laughs> right. So I wrote down humble, kind, funny, smart, yeah. hardworking, soberish, right. They don't need to be in the rooms, but like somebody who doesn't have a problem with alcohol essentially. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
she was like, here's the deal though. You have to be all those things on that list, except for the soberish one. Like you actually need to be sober. Mm -hmm. And then she said, and I want you to say this prayer and it's dear God, please put a healthy man into my life on your time. Mm. Right. And, um, that's what I did. And I met him like two weeks later. Um, and you know, we closed down the restaurant the first night, but like, he didn't kiss me on our first date. And I was just like, he must not really like me. Right. But I was just, wasn't like used to being respected really. And, um, you know, he moved in like two months later and we've been together ever since. And I, I just like think back. I want to know, was he six foot five? Did he nope. have right there? He's not <laughs> six foot five. He doesn't drive a truck. He doesn't have any tattoos. He does have red hair and he is an Eagles fan. Um, two but, out of five. <laughs> right. Ain't so bad. Right. But he is humble to a fault. Mm-hmm. He is kind, smart, funniest person I've ever met. Right. Um, hardworking to the point that it drives me crazy sometimes and he's soberish right like he does not he'll I think I can probably count on one hand how many times he's drank since we've been together and it's been almost two years um which is just like mind-blowing to me like I'll, I'll always be like you can have a drink if you want it doesn't bother me and he's like I don't feel the need and I'm like huh, I don't know what that feels like <laughs> you know but um you know, I was going to cut things off like pretty quick into our relationship because of his work schedule. He's a restaurant manager. So it's like not great. Yeah. Especially when I work in corporate and then he's working like nights and stuff. So my sponsor was like, let me ask you something. Is this the first time you haven't been in a codependent relationship? Uh... And then she said, let me ask you something. Is it possible that his schedule allows you to focus on your recovery? And I was like, you're right. And, you know, he's my best friend. Um, We have a puppy together now. And, um, you know, then he also told me, he's like, you know, we matched on like a dating app back in like 2019 and you wouldn't answer my messages. And I was like, you better thank God. (laughs) Like (laughs) that was God helping you out, buddy. Like, and, you know, the 12 steps and, you know, these spiritual principles have helped me through everything, you know, like and the lows and the highs, right. And like being humble and not being boastful and things. And also like dealing with anything like it's, this isn't a, this isn't a, program to solve the drink problem it's to solve all your problems um but yeah I'm just so grateful and like I I'll show you this I have this little shelf next to and it see it says kind of have my coins there now um, do you have a favorite recovery quote is it on that shelf is that a favorite one um we always end with a favorite recovery quote um yes we will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace oh that's beautiful yeah so i have another holder up because i'm getting ready to get another coin and i just i when i put that holder up the other day i just started hysterically crying because i was just like i couldn't even get a day yeah 
you know, and now coming up on two years. It's just crazy to me. Well, we're celebrating with you. And well, thank you. Your accomplishments. And thank you so much for your service. Absolutely. And speaking to our patients, being part of the alumni, it, it really, it helps to have, to see alums at all stages in the journey, right? Like mm-hmm. sometimes when looking at somebody who's got two years seems so unattainable. And so having somebody who's just in the beginning stages, it's important to see that. But then it's also important to see people um, coming back into life and and putting all the pieces back together and and what what that looks like too. So thank you so much. Absolutely. It's an honor and a privilege, honestly. And I'm so grateful for RCA and for all of you and especially Vince. It's a privilege to do what we do. Yeah. And gentlemen, thank you so much for listening today. If you or someone you know needs help, please reach out. Reach out to one of our alumni coordinators. They can help our alums or anyone you know who who just needs to talk to somebody and and um, talk about getting help. Um, call one eight three three RCA alum or go on to our website, rcaalumni.com. We have over 130 support group meetings a month that you can be a part of. Um, You don't have to be affiliated with RCA to join one of those support groups. And we would love to see you and um, help you learn more about recovery. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Strength and Recovery Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please tap the subscribe button and leave us a review. We love hearing from our listeners and hope to reach more of you out there as we continue to share these incredible stories of recovery. The RCA alumni team aims to provide a safe, supportive environment for those in the recovery community, regardless of their affiliation with RCA. We host a full calendar of virtual and in-person meetings seven days a week, 365 days a year, as well as free sober events every month. To learn more about what we do, find us at rcaalumni.com. Remember, if you or a loved one is struggling with addiction, pick up the phone and dial 1-833-RCA-ALUM. Help is available 24-7. Listen to another episode now or join us next time for the Strength and Recovery Podcast.